0: Welcome to the War in Ukraine Update from Kyiv podcast. I'm Jessica Ganawa, a lecturer in international relations at Flinders University in Australia, and I'm talking today with Botokaz Kasimbakova. Botokoz is a lecturer in modern history at Universitat Basel, Botakoz focuses in her work on Soviet history, Stalinism, post-Stalinism, and Russian imperial history, and is also author of the book, Despite Culture's Early Soviet Rule in Tajikistan, that traces Soviet imperial strategies in Central Asia. I'll put a link to that book in the show notes. Thanks for joining me on the podcast today, Botakoz.
1: Thank you for the invitation.
0: When a generalist is thinking about the Soviet Union and Soviet policies and approach, the first thing that comes to mind might not be that the Soviet Union was a colonial empire. However, that's something that you've actually discussed and pursued in your work. Could you give some background for listeners about why it might be appropriate to consider The Soviet Union as a colonial empire? Well, I think
1: it is crucial to consider it a colonial empire. So far, there has been different research and different arguments for looking at the Soviet regime as a modern state or a colonial empire. During the Cold War, there were lots of arguments for considering uh, the Soviet Empire as a colonial empire, but these arguments were proposed by emigrants who fled during the war to the United States. So we have, you know, um, historians of Polish background who've been directly affected by the invasion and colonization. So they've been proposing to look at it as an empire, but. Interestingly, especially after the collapse of the Soviet Union, there has been a lot of revision of Soviet history. Many historians after the collapse went uh, to Russia and actually a bit before as well and argued that, well, we need to understand uh, the Soviet experience as kind of modern state building. And they've been looking at, you know, these repressions and uh, violence as a modern experience. They say that, well, modern nation-states were also violent. So there is no reason to look at the Soviet experience as an imperial experience, because especially we have participation of some of the kind of minorities of the Russian uh, empire, Tsarist empire, in that project. For example, the argument that Stalin was a Georgian, or we have in Politburo, we have, uh, you know, a very colorful presentation of different ex-colonial subjects. So in that regard, people were saying that we have to understand it as a modern uh, state project. Also, there were historians who were talking about imperialism, but they didn't define it. So they kind of clearly understood that it was a multi-ethnic or multinational polity and that suppression for national independence took place, that there was kind of that uh, dimension, but historians didn't really look at it as a colonial endeavor because the image of colonialism uh, that historians had was of an extractive colonialism. So mostly, for example, historians of Central Asia were comparing Central Asian experience to British India and once they compared, they said, no, we should look at it as a modernizing endeavor. And for example, Turkey is a much better comparison for us than the colonial uh, experience in Algeria or in India. So kind of more or less, I would say, the consensus was that it was not a colonial empire. And right now, there is a lot of discussion of, do we need to reconsider the Soviet experience? Why is Putin using this imperial rhetoric? Is there a need to reconsider uh, the Soviet experience?
0: Mm -hmm. Before we talk a bit about those legacies of Soviet colonialism, can you talk a bit more about some of the policies that were wrapped around that violence of colonialism during the time of the Soviet Union, such as forced resettlement, cultural assimilation? Some people have also talked about attempted genocide that might have taken place So, how do you look at some of those factors as part of a sort of colonial project? I think the
1: fallacies of analyzing the Soviet project as a modern state project and overseeing the colonial dimension lies in saying that simply because we have different ethnic groups participating, that means that this was not a colonial project. Colonialism needs to be understood as a structure and as a system. Simply looking at individuals doesn't a lot of things that have happened. So the Bolshevik idea of the world revolution was a very territorial endeavor. For Bolsheviks, it was very important to control territories, not only because a territory is this is where we can build communism. It's not only a context for building a new regime, but also to expand it. So, for example, if we look at Tajikistan, previously uh, to the construction of Tajikistan 1924, there was no national movement. Tajikistan was created in order to conquer Afghanistan. What happened was that Russian ethnographers found out that there were many, I mean, in Central Asia, Persian speakers. The idea was that in Afghanistan and Iran, there, there are also Persian speakers. So if we construct a Persian-speaking republic, in the Soviet Union, we train these people in communism, and they will be playing pivotal role in spreading the revolution to Afghanistan and Iran. So before it wasn't called invasion, it was spreading the revolution. And the attempt took place in 1931. But the problem was the border between Tajikistan and Afghanistan, it turned out, was settled by Turkic-speaking nomads. And the border was very important. So there were Forced resettlements took place from the mountains of Tajikistan to these plains, the idea was that this border would be a military border, and these collective farms, they were considered both economic and military units. And the department, the military department that was doing that was called the Department for Military and Economic Affairs. So the military and economic affairs were seen as one and the same thing. The problem was that a lot of People who were resettled, they didn't like that place. They wanted to go back home. This is where their livelihoods took place. So this project did not really work, but then forced resettlers from Russia were settled on the border. And that, if we look at these policies of forced resettlements, we will see direct connection to 19th century Russian colonial policies because Russian colonial maps, the ones that were taught to colonial officers, uh, the idea was that those places that were populated by uh, Russians, by at least 50% of Russians, they were officially designated as secure lands, as loyal lands. Those places in the Russian empire where there were less than 50% of Russians populated by Russians were considered as potentially disloyal lands. So when the Bolsheviks sent in 1920s, it was officially called Settlers from European Parts of the Soviet Union. They were sent to that border with Afghanistan, which is 5,000 kilometers. They were sent there with the same logic that if we have Russians populated on that very important border, then we will secure the border. So if we look at actually policies, we will see a lot of the same, not only processes and instruments, but logics that we use ethnic Russians to secure our territory. I wrote this article in 2011, it's called Humans as Territory. And that logic, using humans for securing territory, is the logic that has been used at least since um, Catherine II, but actually early as well, but massively by Catherine. If we look at the Soviet Bolshevik regime that saw securing territory as key for their Bolshevik regime, then we will recognize that a lot of the policies and logics and the system and the structure of the endeavor is not only similar but is actually a settler colonial policies that the bolsheviks have been uh, using the logic was territorial and the tools that have been used were also adopted from you know earlier tsarist policies because russia has been a settler colonial empire with some regions which we could designate back then as like these overseas colonies, for example, Turkestan. So the difference between settler colonial empires and extractive overseas empires lies, as Patrick Wolf, an Australian historian, explained exactly in that relationship to land and labor. So for settler colonial empires, securing territory is the key purpose, whereas for extractive overseas colonial empires, the interest is not so much the land for settlement for themselves, but rather the labor, to extract as much labor as possible. So what happens? Why is this difference so key? In settler colonial empires, in order to secure land for settlement, you try to Free the territory from the indigenous population. How do you do that? There are two most important modes of securing territory and making sure that the indigenous population don't claim the land back. The first one is genocides, physical extermination. You kill these people. The Bolsheviks did that. They did that with Ukrainians. They did that with um, Kazakhs. Also those who resist, they are exterminated. The second very important Way to secure territory is to assimilate people. When you assimilate people and the Bolsheviks russify people, they lose connection to their past, they lose connection to themselves, and once they become like the colonizers, they don't claim the land back. So, what happened was uh, this very, very violent process of russification took place everywhere in the Soviet Union. So the kind of the idea of constructing the new Soviet man based on Russian culture, Russian language was part of that assimilation process. This was in many ways a very successful colonial enterprise. So some of the kind of discussions today, oh, we have so many Russian speaking Ukrainians. And this language that is being used to colonize was actually, in the 1930s, used also to colonize. So kind of this language is not simply a question of identity. It's a question of securing territory, actually. And this is what Putin is doing, is like saying, well, we have Russian speakers, we need to defend them. And this is part of the long kind of imperial strategies that Russian Empire has been using for centuries. And as a historian, I recognise this immediately.
0: Mm -hmm. So why do you think it is that the Soviet Union is not often recognised as a colonial project?
1: The problem is that, of course, that there was a lot of resistance of looking at the Soviet Union as a colonial empire, partly because The Soviet experiment was a space of projection for a lot of people, especially in the capitalist West, to look for a positive alternative, a good alternative that was able to defeat capitalism, that was able to institute social welfare, etc. These questions that were interesting for Western historians, for understanding their own societies... They oversaw the questions that were important for societies in the Soviet Union. Plus, because of this assimilation, a lot of people were simply considered as Russian. If you really talk to people who were culturally assimilated, they would also say, you know, like, I'm Russified, I'm just Russian, we were just part... Of that soviet you know population or people which makes it very difficult to study to understand all that violence that was accompanied to have this russified people and this is why early history research is sometimes misleading you know like my grandmother for example we have so much history of repression in my family so in the 1990s for example an american historian comes to talk about stalinism of course she would only glorify that time in fear that the Soviet Union will again come back, you know, and she will be put in jail for saying that. So how to approach these other hidden stories that are so difficult to extract, but also one has to take a long-term historical perspective. You have to understand the logic and the structure and the system.
0: Mm -hmm. Framing it in that way that Russification was actually a way to secure territory really puts everything into a different light, So you mentioned Stalinism and the types of narratives that people were fed during that time. And you mentioned your own family, your own grandmother, how those sort of narratives that were developed under Stalinism have continued to have a certain power, even after the breakdown of the Soviet Union. Can you talk about that? In what way maybe were mindsets formed that still have a power or a hold even after the Soviet Union was dissolved.
1: When, you know, Russian scholars looked at Ukraine or the Caucasus or Central Asia, the main narrative was we developed you, so you wouldn't be on that that civilizational level if we wouldn't do that. Well, I say that that is part of Stalinist kind of colonialism, because since 1932, Russians proclaimed as kind of uh, the most civilized people in the Soviet Union. You know, this narrative survived, like Russian people being as the most progressive people, as, you know, saving others from barbarism or potential colonization by Western powers. So in Central Asia the Bolshevik narrative in the 1920s and 30s, and actually until the collapse of the Soviet Union was, if Russian people wouldn't save you, you would be colonized by the British. And, you know, you would suffer so much. Very similar rhetoric for other places. So this really resembles that rhetoric, you know, the Ukrainians, NATO, the Western powers, we need to save our Slavic brothers, so kind of the Stalinist rhetoric of saving kind of the neighboring regions from Western powers was a very, very kind of Russian-Soviet narrative that has not been questioned. You know, I'm a regular visitor to Russia. I was a regular visitor to Russia. and. You know, when you say that you're from Kazakhstan, the reaction would be, you know, we developed you, we civilized you. And, of course, I know that this is how settler-colonialism works. Settler-colonial rhetoric works only when you cannot recognize it as colonial rhetoric. It will be always a rhetoric of modernity. It will be always be rhetoric of civilization. And I, of course, understand that this is kind of settler colonial discourse, and I, you know, don't get offended. But this is kind of part of a Russian national idea that we brought progress to other people and these people should be thankful so if you look at social media every second comment would be why aren't you so grateful both to central asians to people in caucasus but also people in ukraine and the baltic countries in, in moldavia so why aren't you just grateful to us and why just you come back why are you going after these westerners you are traitors and this idea of traitorship and enemies of the people is part of that kind of bolshevik etc colonial discourse, because if you don't, you know, become part of us, you know, there's something absolutely wrong with you. And so Ukrainians have been right now just as pathologized as they were pathologized during the Soviet times.
0: Mm -hmm. And you yourself grew up in Kazakhstan, I believe. So how did you experience that legacy of settler colonialism in Kazakhstan?
1: One of the kind of very difficult legacies of settler colonialism is that once people switched to Russian language, because there were no opportunities to learn Kazakh, for example, in my hometown, which is considered to be quite Kazakh. I mean, Kazakhs were a minority in uh, Soviet Kazakhstan. But there were regions where there were only 5% of Kazakhs. And there were regions where there were 30% of Kazakhs. So I was kind of in a town where there were a little bit more Kazakhs. And yet uh, there was only one school. You know, there was simply no opportunities to learn Kazakh. So we had to learn Russian. So Russian is my mother tongue. My Kazakh is very weak. So what does it mean? It means that I didn't study Kazakh history. I don't know Kazakh language. I knew a lot about Moscow and St. Petersburg. I knew, you know, street names in Moscow. But, you know, I, I didn't know anything about neighboring towns. And this is how cultural erasure works. We didn't have opportunities to go to Kazakh schools. In no Soviet school, you would learn anything about your own culture. So the idea was that to have all these millions of people living mentally in Moscow... And identifying with Moscow. So when we watch TV, uh, for example, we learned everything about Russia. There were no Kazakh people on, you know, Soviet programs. We've been mentally living in Russia, identifying with Russia. It was presented as a gift of civilization. It was presented as something where you received something. You received more than you lost. So you never thought about the losses. You actually were happy that you you lost all of this because what you lost was presented as backward. But then you understand the whole violence of that process. And you realize that okay, we didn't have these anti-colonial movements. And this is one of the kind of questions for a lot of commentators is that why is it 30 years after the collapse of the Soviet Union, we have this kind of anti-colonial mood, but why was there this anti-colonial movement before the collapse of the Soviet Union? Yes, there were. We know them. Uh, There were. But it wasn't, why wasn't there bloodshed? Why why wasn't there this anti-colonial uprising? Why weren't there anti-colonial wars that lasted like three, four, five years Why they were like quite short? And one of the reasons is, of course, there is this difference between settler-colonial and this exploitative colonial system. So in exploitative colonial systems, you don't assimilate these people. You treat them as others. You know, you treat them as barbaric and you tell them that they are barbaric. You know, and it's easier, like, you know, like they're always occupiers they're always different you know there is never assimilation so you don't identify with these people whereas the assimilated generations they do identify with a color with a colonizer but the colonizer has a very different relationship towards you because they are the ones who enlightened you and they have the natural right to control you and so and that's the big difference is that the colonized kind of think that you're equal but the colonizer will never accept you as equal and they will never allow you to go your own way. You will always have to identify with the colonizer. Any misstep will be considered as, you know, enemy activity. And that I think explains a lot of what is happening right now, that it's forever. And this is what I write in my book, is that settler colonialism, it doesn't only erase you as an autonomous, you know, culture or a group, ethnic or national group, cultural group, but it really thrives only on the idea of eternity. You must always be in that state of erasure. You must always identify with a the colonizer. There is no way outside of thinking about yourself. Once you do that, you become extremely dangerous because you Endanger the whole structure. You endanger not only the peripheries. You endanger the core of the of the empire. And so Russia right now is a settler colonial empire towards Chechnya, you know, towards Buryatia and all of these um, Tatarstan, Bashkortostan. In the Russian discourse, any thinking of these republics becoming independent stir a crisis because. This kind of territorial idea of, you know, having the biggest country on earth, uh, having this territorial identity is at the core of the metropolitan idea. We've civilized, we've conquered, It, it is our land. And because this is part of the national idea, any idea that these people can have their own futures and they they can decide about their own future not even as, as independent states but even as states of russia but making independent decision about their language for example no kind of the ideal is that nobody knows any other language than russian and when everyone is russian when everyone feels russian when everyone only knows russian our territory is secure any you know demand to learn native language is considered a traitorship and is harshly, harshly punished in Russia. And that idea humans as territory, we will russify people, and then only once we have everyone Russian, you know, securing territory through Russians is at the core. And this is kind of why so many Russian elites are defending the Russian literature, Russian language, Russian culture, because it's such an important part of that national identity. They don't really understand that it is a very colonial endeavor, that it was part of the colonial construct and part of the colonial metropole. So it's not only the peripheries who are constructed, it's the metropole has to be constructed all the time. And this idea of the greatness of Russian culture is an instrument of settler colonialism.
0: Can you reflect on... Russia's full scale invasion of Ukraine in this light, did you see that as essentially a legacy or an extension of this type of colonial violence or this type of colonial mindset?
1: What we have in Ukraine right now, I think you can understand a lot of processes that are taking place right now in the occupied territories. And how the whole war is led, the genocide, you know, we need to free these territories and we need to kill these people. We need to erase these people and the russification policies. All of this has uh, took place in the 1920s. This is exactly how the Bolshevik takeover took place. It was even worse, I, I would argue, because there was no defense, especially in Central Asia. There were no arms, but there was a lot of resistance. But what we can see is actually settler colonialism again in action.
0: And do you think, I mean, I don't want to make simplistic overgeneralizations, but do you think that this is primarily Putin's narrative and Putin's war? Or do you think that this narrative does resonate in the broader Russian population?
1: Of course, it's not the Russian society that started the war. It's the regime that started the war. But the regime could also started the war because societal leaders did not really work on dismantling that imperial mindset. That's why the society was really prone into buying into that. So these are uh, connected things. Society was, in a way, allowing Putin to do it in Chechnya. So once he got this green card from society, then with Crimea, then with Abkhazia, So, and this is how society strengthened Putin. So society does carry the responsibility. It is their responsibility to start asking, maybe we should, you know, give freedom to Chechnya to decide whether they want to be part of us or not. It is their responsibility to raise these questions and to talk about it and say, well, you know, there were so many atrocities that were conducted in our name. We are responsible to face These issues and to see how we can prevent this.
0: Yep. And I guess that raises the question for me where to from here? I mean, I hope that Ukraine achieves military victory. However, even so, is dismantling this mindset and these narratives important to ensure that in future there won't be additional territorial incursions on behalf of Russia, either into Ukraine or other former Soviet states. So do we see any signs that that might already be taking place in Russian society?
1: So far there is silence. Russian society is not ready to face. That transition is extremely difficult because it means for Russian people, intellectuals, uh, but also society at large, to move away from their saviorship identity, their identity of martyrs. you know, like, we gave up, we are victims, we gave up so much for you, and you need to be thankful. And that idea and that identity of being this cultural supremacist, being better than anyone, being better than Americans, you know, Americans are uncivilized, they don't know Dostoevsky and Pushkin, parting with this identity... And getting down on earth with other people and saying that we need to share power and we need to share, we, we need to get into a very uh, normal dialogue that there are no, you know, people who are better than others. It will be a very painful process. This is why for a lot of Russian people, any criticism, you're russophobe, you're emotional, you're not rational. This will be a very difficult task. I don't see anyone in Russia so far among intellectuals or historians who are ready to face that heavy legacy. I do have a couple of Russian historians who absolutely share, you know, my arguments. Thanks to them is that I uh, keep hope, but they're not vocal. You know, they're very private. For Russian people, it will be a very difficult one um, because this idea of you being part of a supremacist culture, something that is better, something that is worth fighting and dying for, something that you know made you the largest country on earth parting from that is extremely difficult but it has to take place and the problem is that because there are no people right now in Russia who are ready to face that i can say that we will be we will be facing difficult times If we look at the German example, defeat was very painful, but also allied powers really kind of did a lot of work on re-educating the German society. So if you you went to a cinema after the war, the first 10 minutes, you would watch, you know, the atrocities of the Holocaust. Uh, So Germans had to be re-educated. But not until 1960s, 60s, that the new generation actually started genuinely asking questions and rethinking the whole past. So it, it took one generation to grow up after the war to actually do any thinking. So Russia is not defeating, you know, the bombs are not flying on, 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 on Russia. For people in Russia to ask, ask actually questions, oh, did we do anything wrong? Nobody is planning and It's it's good. Hopefully, it will not uh, happen. But at the same time, I simply don't know how this can happen if Russian people do not carry the costs. Uh, So far, we have some mobilization, but so far the economy is doing okay. You know, we are hoping that uh, Russian people will start, you know, questioning and and thinking that maybe our culture is not the highest culture on earth if we bring so much atrocities and blood. I don't have answers, but. As again, this kind of system of privileging people who think that way, like really financially and materially and culturally, this was such a system that breaking that system, I don't know how it, it can work. The only thing that I say is that one really needs to platform scholars who come from ex-colonies. Unfortunately, even during this war, mostly Russian scholars are being platformed uh, to explain and to talk about Russia. People from ex-colonies who study Russia, we know Russia from a very different perspective. So I think that really it is key to platform people who come from other parts of ex-Soviet Union to explain what is going on. And maybe at least if we have kind of more of this talk, maybe we can actually have some influence in waking up, especially the young generation of Russian. And maybe they can ask, Questions And maybe they can be part of that process of rethinking, you know, Russian colonial legacies today.
0: Mm -hmm. Well, thanks, Botakoz. This has been fascinating. And I really appreciate you coming on the podcast today and discussing these issues. I've learned a lot of things through this discussion and really had a number of moments where I saw things in a different light, which... I really appreciate. So thank you for that.
1: Thank you for the invitation. Thank you.
0: Thanks for listening. And thanks to Gonca Varol for our theme music.